Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. Here's your host, Chris Lee. Commodore fans, on your feet, it's time to anchor down. Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. I am your host, Chris Lee. Our guest today will be Mitch Light of The Athletic. The guest line is presented by Bowl and Branch, started by Vanderbilt graduates Scott and Missy Tannen. I had no clue how comfortable Bowl and Branch sheets could be until I got some. They are fair trade certified, meaning they are made under safe conditions by men and women treated and paid fairly. Try them free for a month. You can return them, but you won't want to. Once you get the sheets, try the mattress. That was voted the best mattress of 2018. Go to bowlandbranch.com. That is spelled B-O-L-L. Enter the promo code VANDY and get $50 off your first set of sheets. The title sponsor of our podcast this year is Jody Jones DDS, trusted for his creative design and committed to both the function and aesthetics of your smile. Jody Jones provides a range of sought-after dental and cosmetic dentistry services at his practice in Nashville. He's earned the title of number one in Nashville for his cosmetic dentistry and provides a unique luxury environment for patients who want his famous Hollywood smile or other services. Patients enjoy getting services from Dr. Jones and his attentive team in a spy-like atmosphere. Dr. Jones has worked with many artists, movie stars, and celebrities over the years and is dedicated to providing first-rate results to all of his patients. He never compromises quality so patients can be confident they will always receive the highest level of care. Thank you to Jody Jones DDS for making this season of the podcast possible. The news today presented by our friends at Sutherland and Belk, a Nashville-based injury law firm. Sutherland and Belk is committed to fighting for those who have been injured in car, motorcycle, and truck accidents. Check them out at sbinjurylaw.com. The Southeastern Conference men's basketball schedule has been released. The Commodores will play all 13 other opponents in the SEC at least once. Double opponents, meaning that Vanderbilt will have a home and away game with each of these schools, are Tennessee, Kentucky, Florida, Mississippi State, and Texas A&M. Vanderbilt opens conference play on December the 30th at home against Florida. The non-conference portion of the schedule has not been announced. Mitch Light is a college football editor at The Athletic and a longtime friend to me in the podcast. Mitch, thank you for joining us today. I hope you are doing well. Uh, No problem, Chris. Hope you're doing well. I am, and frankly, Vanderbilt may be doing a little better as well. A loss, not what you want to a Mississippi State team that isn't very good, but on the other hand, there were signs of life on both sides of the ball, and I think at this point in the season, that's about the best you can ask for. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those, uh, you know, obviously the point is to win the game. But if you look at the box score, which I've been doing, I've been taking notes for podcasts later in the week. And, and of course, for this podcast, which I prepare hours for, um, you, you look at it and you say, how did Vanderbilt lose this game? I mean, just dominated defensively after the first, um, you know, basically after the first quarter, seven straight punts for Mississippi. Be state and not really sustaining, you know, most of them were three and outs. Um, 
It was 188 yards. I mean, the, the 204 yards was the best defensive performance in an SEC game since that Missouri 10-3 game uh, in Shermer's first year. Mississippi State. I mean, Missouri had 188 yards of offense in that game. So, you know, I, I, it was clear Vanderbilt made an adjustment. And, and one thing about playing the, uh, you know, they, they don't have great personnel right now, but playing the uh, a Mike Leach defense is you can't you can watch a lot of film, you can simulate in practice and you might think you have a good plan for it. And LSU obviously thought they had some sort of plan for it that didn't work. But I guess my point being Vanderbilt clearly adjusted made, uh, to what they were doing instead of sitting back soft, letting them dink and dunk. They brought more pressure and that worked. And again, a, a great, a great defensive performance and offensively against a Mississippi state team that was, has been good. This was the best. Um, let me, I want to double check my stats here before I say them. You know, Mississippi State um, had been, you know, they gave up 499 to Alabama, but 325 to Texas A&M, 157 to Kentucky, 275 to Arkansas, and Vanderbilt had 478 yards. Now, obviously, it's the turnovers, and quite frankly, I think, you know, those just, I don't know if it's a true freshman quarterback or whatever. Ken Seals has done a lot of good things, but he's obviously struggled in the red zone and struggled with some just some bad decisions and maybe just getting used to the speed of opposing defenses. I think that will get better. Um, I think uh, Keon Henry Brooks was, you know, was really emerging as a dual threat guy, catch the ball out of the backfield too. So, you know, obviously lost the game, but clearly the most encouraging game, even more so than Texas A&M because the offense did really did nothing in that game. And um, Vanderbilt was the team in that game that, that benefited from the turnover. So um you know, you got, you got to basically, when you're 0-5, you got to look at the, evaluate each game based on how you played, I guess. And, and we've been harsh, rightfully so, but you got to give them credit at least for playing uh, a pretty good game. And it sounds like, you know, it, the team was pretty shorthanded again. If you were running a computer simulation on this game beforehand and it spits out a box score like the one we saw on Saturday, you would have fired the programmer because I would have never seen one like this coming. Yeah, I mean the only the only thing is the turnovers, and that, that that's the real equalizer. And um, but yeah, you know what this game reminded me of, and I don't I, I think it was 2006. Vanderbilt goes down to Ole Miss and just goes up and down. I think Chris Nixon was the quarterback. Goes up and down the field, but just kept turning it over and missing field goals and lost in in um, in Oxford. And so I looked this up that two times Vanderbilt has given up. Under 200 yards in an SEC road game in the last 20 years, they lost both games. State and that Ole Miss game I was talking about. Uh, Use the uh, college football play index game tracker. Um, Here's another one. Vanderbilt has allowed 250 yards or less on the road six times in the SEC in the last 20 years. They're only three and three in those games, So, um, which is hard to do. But, yeah, you're right. I mean – the 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 first turnover was, you know, I give them credit because they bounced back. I was going to say that first turnover was huge, and it was, but because Mississippi State goes up seven nothing, but Vanderbilt clearly bounced back. It was it was the last one, you know, when they were driving, and um, really looked like they had a chance to go take the lead there, and then just a uh, you know a good play. Uh, I guess Ken just kind of misjudged, either didn't see the the big defensive lineman there, or misjudged his athleticism. But that that's a throw you just can't make. Well, and one reason I say that Mississippi State was last in the country in turnover margin, minus 12 coming in, 
that was just not a box score that I would have foreseen that being the other reason to it as well. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, if you're not just plugging a box score and see who wins, but just coming up with that box score. One other stat I looked this up to. Mississippi State is the first SEC team in at least 20 years. Again, the play index only goes back 20 years to win conference game with negative rushing yards. Mitch, I ask you this as someone who has studied box scores across college football for years now. What percentage of the time have you seen a team outgain another the way that Vanderbilt did, which it was 274 yards and lose a game? I can't think it would be that often. It does. It- it's it's rare. It's not unheard of. It's always, almost always accompanied by turnovers or special team scores. If if the turnovers are even, that's really, really rare. Um, and you can look this stuff up. Um, you can plug some numbers in uh, to see. It, it 200 yards is a 200 yard difference is is a lot. Uh, but again, it, it's not unheard of. And it, it really, it's such a cliche, but it especially with evenly matched teams, turnovers are, are the difference maker. And he what was it, was it five, nothing? Was that the, uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, just that's, that was the, obviously the difference in the game. I don't know how many turnovers were involved, but Vanderbilt actually won one like that against Georgia. The game where Zach Cunningham was so good. I guess that was 2016. I don't remember the turnover number, but it sort of played out that way while they get dominated in yardage, foreign yardage against, but win the game based on circumstances, right plays at the right time. That was, yes, that was the, I, I don't have the box score in front of me, but I looked that up after the game. It was like the, the only time in the last 20 years in college football that a team with, you know, 150 yards or less won a game on the road road giving up for whatever whatever the difference was there that that was one of the more unique box scores you will ever see um and i think let's let's um i i think further praise for vanderbilt the offensive line um again with with guy what two potential starters out there uh that that didn't make the trip and and you know they, they had a running back over 100 yards and seals was under some pressure but you know i thought they did a really good job against an athletic and a very good defensive front um for mississippi state yeah, big props to that group. Peter Rosamondo has done a great job there. Let's point this out. Julian Hernandez gets, I think, the first snaps of his career. They ran pretty well between the tackles, and oh, by the way, they didn't have Dan Dawkins or Drew Birchmeyer, who were their starting guards to start the season, out of an offensive line that everybody was already concerned about, even before the opt-outs and that. I don't think that anybody would have foreseen this playing out as well as it has. Right, the, the you know, again, the team's 0-5, so we get, but the fact that the offensive line isn't, I'm not going to say it's not the reason, but you don't watch them and just say the reason they're 0-5, the reason they're 0-5 is just an overall not playing or lack of talent, but it's not like, oh, if the offensive line was better, they'd be 3-2, and two, if, that, my, if I made my point. Offensive line's not a strength, but it's not the sore thumb weakness. It doesn't stick out like I thought it would before the season. Yeah, I had contacts who were singing Peter Rosamondo's praises before the season even began, and sometimes that is just a change of people don't like the old guy and any new guy is better, but it seems to have really panned out that way where he has got buy-in and is really making that unit a lot better. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing, too. I think observers of 
college football teams, we can't. It's difficult, and I might admit, I missed. I've said this on the radio show this week, or maybe it was we talked about it last week. I apologize if I'm repeating myself, but it's very difficult to uh, judge the impact of position coaches, especially when a lot of them are hired just to be recruiters and stuff. And um, you know, we can. I think I did talk about it last week. You can talk to people inside the program, but you know. How are we supposed to say if a DB coach is good, a wide receivers coach is good, or an offensive line coach is good? I mean, you look at the production, but that's usually more about talent. So, um, again, you can hear good things. The buzz could be good on a coach, but really um, it, it's clear that, that there's a significant upgrade this year. From the other side of coin there, Mitch, what is the most times you've seen a team turn it over and still win a game? Off the top of my head, I don't know. Um, I'll, I'll ask. We've got some guys, some fellow editors at the Athletic, who really they, they've accessed even some really great stat sites and, and, and stuff. We could probably look it up. But that's, you know, I can't imagine a team has won a game anything over, you know, the, the, of minus five, even even if that's the case. Um, but that's a, that's a really good point. It's a good question. I think the recipe would have to be a team like a Clemson or an Alabama or someone like that playing another team that is a 30-point or more underdog, although I don't know that it would happen with Alabama because Nick Saban would probably rip them in half first. But I think that would be the recipe, a team that was a huge favorite and just really had an off day in that regard. Right, right. And uh, by the way, I I just – because you mentioned Nick Saban, one of my all-time biggest pet peeves is – when, I don't know, it just used to happen with Bill Parcells, but people say with Nick Saban, like, oh, Bill Parcells, he hates turnovers. Oh, really? Nick Saban doesn't put up with turnovers. Oh, that's interesting, because um, three other coaches in the SEC, they put up with, you know, I don't know, just, that I just hate when people say that, but go ahead. N- n- nothing against what you just said. Well, one other thing I noticed today on the SEC's official stats, they are, I think, second or third in the conference in penalties in a good way, and I think against them opponents are getting higher number of penalties and penalty yards so I think it amounts to maybe 15 or 20 yards difference a game in Vanderbilt's favor but I thought that was just something worth mentioning too right um I think that there's far less far less correlation between penalties than turnover in fact you know I think it's been proven it's been in the NFL like a lot of times there's almost no correlation between turnovers and winning and losing. I mean, I mean penalties in in the, not necessarily in a specific game, but over the course of a season. So, um, so I, I just plugged in and I'll talk, I'll walk through it in the. I just picked random numbers. I'm in the play index. Teams with any team with I picked seven turnovers that had seven or more turnovers and an opponent had zero turnovers. So I'll see in the last 20 years if this game has ever happened. Okay. This is going to be fun because I have no idea what it's going to spit out, and I don't believe you do either. No. Okay. There's been uh, 17 games in the last 20 years. All every team is. It, it, there's been no wins. Now there's no. The stand on the scores of the game. The most recent was Central Michigan. Why? Oh, your Wyoming Cowboys have been on the bat. The the wrong end. The last two times has happened. Wow, they Wyoming two times in a season had no turnovers forced. In one game, they had eight. They turned it over eight times. Another time, they turned it over seven times. That had to be pre-Craig Bowl. 
2017, I don't think so. No kidding. I would have never guessed that. Which game was that? Uh, Central Michigan and New Mexico, same year. I see two. The only SEC game on here I see is the 2003 Mississippi State. Uh, looks like Mississippi State had eight turn. Maybe I'm looking at this the wrong way. No, I don't think I am. Like I thought, maybe I had the teams flip. Mississippi State, Arkansas had a seven, uh, eight turnover. Let me. I know this isn't great podcasting. Let me go at eight turnover. Uh, I'm gonna go to nine turnovers. Nine turnovers to zero turnovers. Has that has not happened? I actually have a funny story about that very New Mexico game. We were out there visiting Aiden and his family over Thanksgiving and. He was about to go to New Mexico for that game, and he was playing scout team quarterback. New Mexico ran the option, and he had been a high school quarterback in that style of offense, so he was assigned to be the New Mexico quarterback. And I asked him, I said, Aiden, how did practice go this week? And he said, well, I had this great game or this great practice, and I think he said he had something like 400 yards of total offense. And I looked at him and I laughed and said, Aiden, I'm really happy for you, but I'm not sure that's really great for your team's chances this coming Saturday. Speaking of uh, scout team, I probably told the story, but it's a fun one to to, to go back and, and revisit. You know, obviously Colin Vanderbilt fans who watch the game saw Colin Duncan, CJ Duncan's uh, brother, played for Mississippi State. Bob Shoup told me that when Vanderbilt was preparing for Texas A&M, uh, whatever year that was, 2013, CJ Duncan played was Johnny Manziel, played option quarterback, and he said. In all his years of coaching, no player had ever done a better job running a scout team, being a scout team quarterback, as far as like not just the style of play, but mimicking the guy. Like he would go in, go in the go in the end zone. He would make the money signs. He had the same demeanors. Like he watched film of of uh, Manziel to get down even his mannerisms. So I've, every time I think of C.J. Duncan, I think of that. By the way, to wrap up a loose end here, I looked up the penalty stats for this year in the SEC. Vanderbilt third in penalties against in a good way. The Commodores have 22 penalties. That's the lowest number in the SEC, of course. It has also only played five games. Averages 36.4 yards per game in penalty yards. That's the third lowest in the league. And then penalties against in a good way. Vanderbilt second, 53.4 yards and 32 penalties against the yardage ranks second. So you've got a difference there of about 17 or 18 yards a game in a good way. So that does help things just a little bit. Oh, and by the way, Arkansas is first in both penalty yards for and penalty yards against in a good way. There's a spread there of about 24 yards a game. So that might be something that regresses to the mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, one more thing, we can move on. I looked this up. Over the last 20 years, 10, 10 times has a team had five turnovers and uh, the opponent had zero turnovers and won the game. So it has happened. It's happened 10 times? 10 times. Five turnovers and zero turnovers and they've won the game. Okay, does it all fit the profile I thought it would of just a team being an overwhelming favorite? Yeah. Auburn-Mercer, I remember that game. Uh, Houston-Tulane. 2020. I mean, I don't know if that's a Arkansas State, Georgia Southern, Marshall, Memphis. This this is going back. TCU, Wyoming, Wyoming keeps popping up. Boston College, Wake Forest. So yeah, I mean, sometimes it sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But uh, I can get get lost on that for for hours on that website. I'm just shocked that it's been that many times. 
Yeah. Are you not surprised that it's happened more than once or twice? Yeah, surprised, yes. Yeah, I guess play that many times and you see some crazy things happen. Anything else on the Vandy end to discuss before we get into the SEC? Not really. Um, again, the, the you know, no, I think we covered it all. I was just uh, pouring through the box score. Um, uh, I, I didn't look this up. I'm sure, it's, I'm sure Kyle Shermer did 46 pass attempts. I wonder if that's the most for Vanderbilt quarterback. And do you remember a game? The last game of the Robbie Caldwell era, didn't Jared Funk throw about 50 passes? Yeah, I didn't think it was more than that. I want to say John Gromos was up there in a game against Alabama. I want to say 1989 in a game where it was just raining the whole time. I was at that, and I remember that one. Well, last last year, Vanderbilt threw 48 at Purdue. Okay, here we go. Jay Cutler, 66 against Kentucky in 05. That's the game where he threw five touchdowns to Bennett, and they lost. Gromos against Alabama, 89. Funk against Wake Forest, 2010. With Taylor, 57. Georgia, 82. Kirk Page, 56. Georgia, 83. With Taylor, 53. Tennessee, 81. Kyle Shermer, 52. Missouri, 2017. Johnny McCrary, 50. Georgia, 2015. Greg Zolman, 50 against Georgia in 2001. And then you have a four-way tie with four guys at 49. That's 14 guys in the record book, and I think they lost every one of those games too. Yeah, usually, unless you're a team that, like a run-and-shoot team, usually when you throw the ball a ton, it's not a good thing. The Johnny Gromos game, 1989 against Alabama, is the first college football game I co- first game I covered for the Hustler. I was, a, I was a freshman. It was like my third week on campus, and I was covering that Van Roy game. Do you remember that day? Because I think it rained almost from start to finish. I remember just uh, Corey Harris dropping a touchdown in the end zone. It was a three-point that would have given Vanderbilt the lead. I remember it started pouring raining, and a ton of people left, and then Vanderbilt was coming back. And I just remember, because from the press box, you can see some students running back into the game. Um, and then, But it was pouring at the end. Yeah. Let's see. Next thing I wanted to ask you, Mitch – was Georgia and Florida sort of a changing of the guard, you think? Because I've always been a little skeptical of what Kirby Smart has done at Georgia. You know, he's bringing in talent, right? And he can obviously coach defense, but offense is where your bread is buttered these days. And Nick Saban has figured that out. I don't think he has. To me, I'm not surprised that Florida won the game, maybe a little bit with margin of victory. But is that a case where Florida is sort of – taking over as the number two in the SEC. I guess it's premature to say it's happened yet, but it just seems like to me that's where this is headed. I think it's premature to say it. I think it's easy to say it uh, based on what we saw. Um, I think you're correct in everything else you said about, you know, Kirby not embracing what needs to be done or maybe trying to embrace but doesn't have the ability to do it right now with his quarterbacks. When you recruit it there at that level and you have those players, now let me I'll go over their their last Four recruiting classes, number one in the country, number two in the country, number one in the country, number three in the country. You have enough talent on your roster that if you make the the right philosophical switch like Alabama did, um, that you can, that it'll take, it'll, it'll, it'll vault you from, you know, where you are to, again, being a national championship caliber team. You know, they almost won one. So I guess my point is 
they are the right quarterback, and they got that what Vandergroff kid, five-star kid, top ten national player committed. If he's the answer at quarterback, they have enough talent on their roster. Like they have more talent on their roster than than Florida does. So um, I don't think I, I don't think they're they're far off. Um, but right now, clearly, Florida is the, the the team to beat and the more fun team to watch. And it shows it just shows you how important the quarterback position is. I mean, it's kind of an obvious statement, but you've got a Georgia roster that's better than a Florida roster. But Florida's quarterback was so much better than Georgia's quarterback. What's going to happen at Tennessee now? Because that fan base has turned quickly on Jeremy Pruitt, and I don't think it's unfair necessarily. No, I think it's accurate, and uh, you know, we, I think we talked last week, but it's the the the, the talking point is it's the blowout losses, it's the uncompetitive play, and again, what, they lose they lose by eleven. They, it wasn't like they were uncompetitive, but it was an eleven point loss to Arkansas. It's not like when they lose, they're they're losing close. the 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 amount of blowout losses has been staggering. So, I mean, he is Phil Fulmer's guy, one hundred percent. I would be shocked if he's not back next year because Phil Fulmer's the one calling the shots. In and like, I don't know what's more dangerous. You know, um, uh, see how it phrases, but like, Fulmer's kind of a guy that I know Tennessee fans love him, but didn't really take over the job in the best of circumstances sort of a coup there and then he hires a guy that probably wasn't high on a lot of people's lists so I guess my point is he's he's gonna fight everything and if he's the ultimate decision maker then then Jerry Pruitt definitely will be back but he Fulmer's gonna fight for his guy um to the very end the other thing I'm watching is Will Muschamp at South Carolina. The rumors are swirling uh, that he is about to lose his job. Somebody reported last night that it was basically happening. I, I don't know that that was a uh, legitimate media report, but point is uh, a lot of people are talking about that. That's kind of hard to see resolving in a good way for Will Muschamp, but what are your thoughts there? Yeah, there was a report. The guy in I closely with South Carolina writer Josh Kendall the, the, the guy who reported it was out of Knoxville and and Josh checked with some other Knoxville media members who didn't even know who this guy was um and so it still might happen but you know Josh checked with his sources at South Carolina and there was nothing imminent um but yeah it, it that's a some the, the former in the regard to to Pruitt in regard to like a, an athletic director former coaches and Ray Tanner hired his guy that maybe wasn't the most popular choice and he's been fighting for him for years but now it's gone. It's beyond the Pruitt thing. It's where the Tanner's losing support based on Muschamp's struggles. And it's, it's, it's trending in the wrong direction. I mean, they, the upset went over Auburn, but they, they, they were alarmingly uncompetitive against Texas A&M. I looked this up. They, you know, they, they lack skill. Um, they're the only SEC team that does not have two, two wide receivers with 10 receptions. Like the point being is like Shy Smith's good. They have no one else really that stepped up. So I do, you know, we went into the season, Chris saying oh, COVID and the financial um, issues at schools. But like once you, once the, the bullets start flying and you get into this and the fans start getting pissed, I, I don't know if that's going to be the case. I mean, uh, my guess is Muschamp will not be back next year. Is Texas A&M going to end up being as good as everybody thought it would be before the season? Could be. They looked great. Uh, part of it was South Carolina, but they were unstoppable. I just looked this up. I think they had 10 drives, 10 possessions in the game, seven touchdowns, uh, turned it over on downs once and two punts. That, that was just like barely break a, break a sweat game um, on the road. 
Um, so yeah, they, it, they, they're a team that right now is, you know, their, their best, their one, their best wide receiver opted out. Their second best wide receiver got hurt. So they're not exactly loaded at the skill of the wide receiver position, good tight end, good running backs, but they are, they're playing serious. They're playing very well. What do you make of Andy Kentucky this weekend? Because again, I look at this, like I did Mississippi state and saying, this is the kind of game that Vanderbilt can win if things break right, at least on paper. Uh, now, I think Kentucky's defense is tons better, but the problem is Kentucky's offense, I think, is yeah. even worse than Vandy's. Kentucky is dead last in the SEC in total offense, 295 yards a game. Now, Kentucky is averaging 4.8 a play, which actually there are three teams in the league worse than that. Carolina, excuse me, Vandy, Mississippi State, and Tennessee are all just a little worse than that per play. Scoring offense, Kentucky, 20.8 points per game. Now, scoring defense, Kentucky leads the league, 19.0. But this could be a lot like that Vandy-Missouri game when Kyle Shermer made his debut. I mean, it's got the the seeds of potentially that type of day. Now, I think Kentucky is much better on defense, and that'll be the difference. It will also be on the road. But again, it, it crazier things have happened than Vanderbilt winning this type of game, at least on paper. Yeah, based on if Vanderbilt plays the way it played on Saturday without turning it over, they could win this game. Um, Kentucky's defense is very good. Mississippi State's defense on paper was very good as well. Um, that's what gives me hope that Vanderbilt can win this game. Um, and but it, Kentucky and Mississippi State are similar teams. They're struggling mightily on offense, and they are good on defense. Uh, it just cannot turn the ball over. You cannot give this Kentucky team – a short field. Now they were off this week. Um, assuming Joey Gatewood's still the quarterback. I haven't seen the depth chart. Maybe they get him more comfortable because last time he started, it was sort of a short, not a short week, but they Wilson was hurt. It wasn't hundred percent sure he was going to start. I guess he's had the week, the two weeks to prepare. Eddie Grant also always does a good job as a coordinator. Um, he's really had Vanderbilt's number in, in recent years. So I, I think that clearly it's definitely a game Vanderbilt can, can win. They need to put, basically need to play as well as they did on Saturday without turning the ball over. One quick question on the national scene. What do you see the Clemson-Notre Dame outcome? And in case people didn't see it, Notre Dame upset Clemson at home in double overtime. What do you see that doing to the playoff picture? Um, you know, it, it it hurts Clemson. In the, like, if Clemson runs the table, Lawrence comes back, and they beat Notre Dame in the championship game, they're going to be in the playoff. But the problem for them is – this year, you really want that number one seed, and they were the number one ranked team in the country. That doesn't mean the playoff committee would have had them ranked one, but they've been one in all the polls because on paper, there's three elite teams. So if you want to be the number one team so you don't have to play Ohio State or Alabama in the first round, it puts Notre Dame in the mix, definitely. You can say Clemson had some defensive starters out, the quarterback was out, but hey, that's still you know uh, on the very small list of best wins by any team in the country. So I, I think... That hurts Texas A&M. It hurts maybe a Florida or Georgia second team from the SEC East. Uh, still a lot of football to be played. I don't think Notre Dame's that good that they're going to necessarily run the table. I, you know, their, their offense is, is nothing great. I saw the Louisville game. They weren't overly impressive. The Duke game, they weren't overly impressive. So a huge win for Notre Dame puts them in the mix, but definitely doesn't by any stretch guarantee a spot. Like if they lose to Clemson in the ACC championship game, they still have a really good argument. But if they lose a game before that, they, they have to win that game. Okay, if we're projecting right now, I have to think Ohio State's probably got the best chance to be in the playoff because I can't see anybody stopping them. 
Right. Now that Clemson lost, I would say Ohio State is, you know, if you're doing your predictor, your probability, yeah, I think they're the most most likely team to make the playoff. And number two, I'd probably go Alabama. I mean, the SEC can be really tricky, right? And you could lose a couple of games there easily if you're Alabama and get knocked out for that reason. But I think I would take Alabama, too. Yes, I would agree with that. I'm still maybe going to go Clemson three. Is that crazy? Yeah, well, I think either way you look at it, if you're doing like a power poll, like I get if you're doing a ranking, you probably wouldn't have Notre Dame ahead of them because they beat them. But if you're doing a power poll, you have Clemson in the top three in the country. And I think Clemson is going to run the table and beat Notre Dame. And if that's the case, they are going to make the playoffs. So I I, I haven't changed my the, the, the big three as far as making the playoffs, but I think you've got to shake up the order a little bit. So who's four? Um, this is going to be tough for Florida because Florida would have to run the table and beat Alabama in the title game probably. Well, the problem for Florida is if they run the table and lose that – well, if they beat Alabama in the t- championship game, then they're in. But their problem is if they lose to Alabama, they have two losses, and you've got Texas A&M who will probably have one loss sitting there, and they lost to A&M head-to-head. So Florida really – I think Florida's chance, only chance is right now is to win the SEC title unless Texas A&M loses another game. So if you're looking for a second SEC team, it's most likely going to be Texas A&M. But then you've got that Notre Dame factor out there. And, hey, if, you know, I don't think this is going to be the case, but if Oregon goes 6-0 and and just dominates everyone in the Pac-12, they, they'll be eligible. Um, they got to get six games in to, or seven games in to begin with because, you know, they had some COVID issues out there. But I would not rule that out. Well, and Texas A&M does not play Alabama, which really helps. They already did. They no, lost. I'm sorry. They they did. Okay, that's right. Because they okay they they lost that one, beat Florida. That's I was thinking for a minute. I got confused. I was thinking that that Florida beat them, but that's no, it was not that. Yeah. So yeah, A&M's got the Alabama loss behind it. Not going to lose to Tennessee. Not going to lose to Ole Miss. Not going to lose to LSU. Auburn, you know, you've seen some crazy things every now and then with Auburn, but I would think they win that one too. Yeah, they're in good shape right now. That Notre Dame, they did not need Notre Dame winning that game. Their their chances probably went down with Notre Dame beating Clemson, but they're still decent. They're still sitting pretty as far as one of those teams that just kind of that's not going to win their league, uh, but has a chance to sneak in as the second team from their conference. So who's your number four? If you're I mean, projecting. But projected, I'm going to say Texas A&M right now. Okay. Yeah, that would be interesting. Let's go ahead and go to the mailbag. That is sponsored by Vanderbilt fan Josh Minton, an independent insurance agent operating out of Brentwood who can take care of all your insurance needs. Call Josh today at 615-933-1979. Email him at josh at hqinsurance.com. Follow him on Twitter at joshuamintonhq or at facebook.com forward slash jdmintonhq. He is my insurance agent. Give him a try and tell him you heard about his business on the Vandy Sports Podcast. Harley Hog 44 says, when will this nightmare end? I'm a little surprised. I thought our podcasts were better than that. I was talking about you as the host. Probably. I think so. Right. Yes. Um, was he talking about the year 2020? Everything, it, it will end in two months, I guess. So, well, given um, this is a Vanderbilt site, I think he meant yeah. the uh, current state of the football program. I don't know. Um, you know, they're, uh, I don't think any of us can know. I mean, uh, you know, w- what's going to happen in the future? Uh, will there be a coaching change? Don't know. 
If there's not, will the team be better next year? I think the team will be better next year. I don't know what the I don't know what the, the, the nightmare threshold is. Um, clearly, has not been a positive uh, last 24 months for Vanderbilt football. Um, but uh, you know, I, I don't know if if we're just looking at the current team and the current roster that there is hope for more competitive next year, competitiveness next year, uh, based on what we've talked about the offensive line and the, and, and the running backs and all that stuff. Uh, but, uh, I wish I wish I had a better answer. I'm not trying to duck, duck the question by any stretch. I just, no, nobody knows the answer to that. I think they have these seeds of being a decent offensive team in the next year or two, because most everybody is coming back and they're starting to put some things together. I think the issue is defense because boy, that is a upperclassman laden bunch. And you and I have had this discussion before the backups just look like guys. I don't see any like emerging star I shouldn't say any but it's hard to really spot where this gets better on that side of the ball yeah and I mentioned this last week even on Vanderbilt teams that lacked overall talent there have been some top end guys like there was a run where there was probably a future NFL cornerback on the roster for you know 10 or 12 straight years I mean we have to go back and look it up but or defensive back you know so you know from the from the mid-2000s on when that happens, that, that's that's big. I mean, have, having, you know, not to revisit the past, but Bobby Johnson's last recruiting years don't get enough credit. They weren't ranked high, but there's a lot of future NFL players um, on that roster. And uh, right now, you know, we, we just don't see it. And that's when, you, when you're lacking overall talent, you need some top-end talent. And it's just not 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 there right now. Yeah, I think that staff was better at talent evaluation than this one. I mean, I think that's that's fair to say. Um, I think Franklin's staff deserves some credit for developing that talent. And obviously when you have more not, – not that you need to be on a good team to make the NFL, but when you have more success, that helps a little bit, I guess. Uh, but, you know, guys like, you know, Andre Howe and um, just the, there's, you know, the Casey Hayward, not that – you know, they, that, the, the, that Franklin staff inherited a senior as Casey here, where it's not like they deserve credit for developing him, but um, um, it was a combination of good evaluations by the Bobby Johnson staff and then um, some good player development by that next staff. By the way, speaking of James Franklin, Penn State 0-3 and got just completely depantsed by Mike Loxie, which is not something you want in your resume. I'm guessing that contract that he signed – makes him untouchable, but man, they are starting to get restless up there. Yeah. And I mean, he, Franklin even said this himself. The problem is they've lost games three different ways. You know, they, they dominated Indiana statistically and blew it from, from just bad execution down the stretch. Then they just got beat by a better team in Ohio state. And then they just had a no show. So I, I don't think he's any kind of trouble. I mean, fans are fans. They're going to bitch and complain. He's got the support of his AD. He's done a good job there. I know a lot of people don't, like to hear that look at his record um he just has the misfortune of kind of being at penn state at a time when his their biggest rival ohio state is maybe at an all-time high as far as recruiting and overall talent you know so you know i again i don't think he's they're on three if they're if they if they're owing six in, in three weeks we can talk again but i he's not in any kind of trouble yeah, and I'm not suggesting he should be, but boy, their message board this weekend was not very kind. Um, a, a lot of folk, a really surprising number of people, seem to want him gone. But anyway, 
Brain 13 asked your thoughts on Ken Seals so far, bad and good. Um, yeah, I mean, he's probably what I expected. You know, we heard good things about him. We thought he would start. Um, I thought he would be pretty good. He's made some bad decisions. He's made some th- – even he had, he had another throw. I rewatched part of the game yesterday, and another throw that could have been picked off. I don't know if it's the speed of the game, not adjusting to the talent of the defensive backs and linebackers, but clearly, you know, he's made too many mistakes, too many interceptions. I like the way he carries himself. I've never, you know, I've never talked to him, never interviewed him, but I like the way, you know, the way he, he carries himself. So, um, I, I think he's been a positive, um, I, you know, you, you can't win games and your quarterback's thrown three interceptions like that. But again, uh, uh, I, I would give him a, definitely a passing grade so far. The superior says, my top three coaching candidates for Vanderbilt are Luke Fickle, Bill Clark, and Billy Napier. Who would you add to that list as possible replacements for Derek Mason? Luke Fickle, not going to happen. Yeah, uh, I think that's a pipe dream, too. Billy Napier probably is also. Um, I'm just – I've had um, – um, Will Healy at Charlotte. I know a lot of people like him and talk about him. Um, Clark Lee. At Notre Dame, um, I like Bill Clark. I've been a big Bill Clark fan for years. Remember, remember when he was at Jacksonville State? Um, someone from Luke Fickle Stack, Marcus Freeman, is a um, the defensive coordinator at um, Cincinnati, uh, former Ohio State player. So uh, I think Will Healy and Clark Lee, if it got to this point, would be my top two candidates. I don't know if I'm crazy. For some reason, I just have a feeling that Clark Lee might be the best of the bunch. Um, I, I don't, I, I, I don't know him. I know people who know him. Our Notre Dame writer at the Athletic raves about him. He's not just a. He's just really smart guy. Gets it. He's not just a. Oh, you know, you can look at teams and say that guy's on a. That guy's a coordinator on a good team his defenses are good he must be a good coordinator like you got but you got to look deeper than that and not that's just not the case that's not why he's a well-respected guy it's because he's very impressive and people who know him are very impressed by him yeah I knew his dad a little bit when he was a walk-on here really impressed with that family and I knew Clark just a little bit not very well but he was a kid who grew up, believe it, NBA, and, and just mm-hmm. I think his dad and his grandfather both maybe went to Vandy. His dad's a physician, I believe. Yeah. But he was a kid who started playing baseball at Birmingham Southern, then transferred on a baseball scholarship to Belmont, and then left his baseball scholarship to walk on to the football team at Vanderbilt because I think that was one of his dreams. And so, again – yeah, I mean, and want to be there is a big part of this. I, I'm not saying that – I'm not necessarily biased against rah-rah guys because it worked for Franklin, right? Uh, right? Although with James, there was a lot more there. There was preparation and things like that. And um, Healy's got a lot of those qualities. Clark sure. is more of a low-key, I think, nose-to-the-grindstone guy and just, like you said, very, very bright guy. And I think, obviously, grows up around that program and then in the program later. And I'm, I'm guessing not a lot would surprise him at Vanderbilt, which by the way, they've got to get to the point to where we stop saying that. But I don't know. I've just been thinking about this a lot recently. And to me, 
if I had to pick, he might be the guy. And I, I don't know if it's based on I, – I, I'll put it this way. I've got a lot more information to gather on other guys. But I think if you said right now he's your coach next year, uh, I think I'd take that. Yeah, no, I'm very impressed. I, I, I'm with you. I like I follow this – closely and I'm not just saying well Healy because or he's his core YouTube videos I know I know someone who knows him very 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 well and you you got to look at what he did at Austin P I know it's a completely different level but he took over the worst probably the worst division one college football program and got them good in two or three years and, and Charlotte's competitive in a difficult situation there um so I, I I'm not just saying him because he's like the flavor of the month either when you say difficult situation, explain that to people. Charlotte? Yes. Well, I mean, not, nothing other – I mean, they have a new sta- – they have a nice little new stadium. It's just the program was not good, and it's a new program. There's, I think there's, like, literally no fan support for it. You know, not literally, no. There's just there's, – there's no buzz for Charlotte football. There's no tradition for Charlotte football. You know, they've had a decent basketball program. It's just um, – it's just a – some would argue it's – I mean, he took the job, so obviously he saw some – some positives there. It's in a metropolitan area. North Carolina is good high school football state, but uh, it's not like, I guess my point is it's not like he went to Marshall, you know, or a, if, if you're talking to conference USA or Louisiana tech, a program that consistently wins and you just plug in the next coach. And it's almost like, it's almost like a bigger deal if you don't win there. Whereas if you do win, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does to me too. And I kind of figured that's what you were going to say, but I asked you that for the benefit of our audience. How long have they have they even had a football program? I know they just got to the FBS level, but I'm trying to think how long they've even had a program, period. Six or seven years. I think they started – they might have started at that level. Yeah, uh, that sounds about right. That's for only a couple of years, um, but it's not like they just moved up. They, they, they started their program to be an FBS team. It's not like um, – trying to think of teams that have made the transition recently, like – well, whatever. There's there's been plenty of schools that have made a transition. Uh, Charlotte started its program to be to be in basically conference US level conference USA level school. Mitch, I'm done for today. Do, do you have any parting thoughts before we end the episode? No parting thoughts. Um, trying to think of something funny to say. Can't even do that. So I've uh, I've said everything I have to say. I've held hold my you know. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll save all my uh, finer points for next week. All right. Well, hopefully we will have something interesting to talk about. Uh, thank you for joining us today on what was a fun show to do. Tell people where they can find you on Twitter, please, Mitch. At Athlon Mitch. I, nope. I said that two weeks ago, too. At Mitch Light. It's been almost a year since I changed my handle. I should remember that. So at And uh, if there are athletic subscribers out there, uh, we did have an interesting story. Our Washington writer, um, did a story on John Donovan last week and talked to Jordan Matthews, talked to Wesley Johnson. So there's a lot of Vanderbilt stuff in that story as, as John Donovan's about to begin his career as a Washington offensive coordinator. It was supposed to be last week, but then their game against Cal was canceled because of a COVID situation. Mitch, thank you for joining us today. All right. Talk to you later, Chris. He's Mitch Light of The Athletic. I'm Chris Lee of AndySports.com. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Should have at least one more episode to come later this week.